0: Thank you so much and thank you everybody for taking the time on a Friday, a beautiful Friday to, to be here. I'm Justin Silverman, I'm the Executive Director of the New England First Amendment Coalition. Just want to take a few moments to tell you about our organization. Uh, we began in 2006, it was a group of journalists in Providence who grouped up with uh, uh, another group of journalists in Boston and they came together specifically to help advance uh, freedom of information laws in both uh, Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And the organization has since evolved to incorporate all of the region, all six New England states, as well as other First Amendment freedoms. And during the uh, last several years, we've really focused in on not only freedom of information laws, but other First Amendment rights, like rights to free press and to free speech. And our work focuses in on education, educating not just journalists with investigative journalism training, uh, but all members, all all, uh, members of the public, all New England citizens on right to know laws as well as how to uh, further open government Uh, We're an advocate, the region's leading advocate for First Amendment freedoms, and we'll often uh, publicly testify on issues pertaining to the First Amendment, particularly when it comes to freedom of speech issues. Um, And we're also here as a matter of defense, filing uh, frequent amicus briefs, as well as uh, being an advocate uh, for the First Amendment and our right to know. So I would encourage everyone to please stay in touch after this presentation. Uh, let me know how our organization can be a resource to you if there's uh, something that you're working on that we can help with I'd ha- happily have a conversation with you and uh, discuss ways that we can help all of our work. You can see it at nefac.org and you have my information there. That's my cell phone. Feel free to use it at any time to uh, give me a call, shoot me a text, or just let me know uh, what we can do to help. And so we have a short period of time and, and I want to get through uh, quite a bit. Um As you know, we're here to talk about the the First Amendment. And uh, today we're gonna focus on uh, free speech and the exceptions, some of the common exceptions to uh, the freedom of speech that we have. But before we get into those, which are here uh, displayed for you, the eight that we most commonly encounter, I wanna first just uh, quiz everybody on what those five freedoms of the First Amendment are. First Amendment gives us five freedoms. I've already named one, speech. What are the other four? There's about a third of the country that can't name a single one. And I'm hoping with this group, we can get through all five pretty quickly. So just use that chat box. Help me out. What are those five freedoms that the First Amendment gives us? We have speech. What are the others? You can type them right into the chat box. All right. Looks like we've got a quiet crowd here. First Amendment, here we go. Here are the five freedoms. Religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition. There's a great way to remember all five. I can't take credit for it. There's a law professor named Bert Newborn. He's at NYU. He wrote this book called Madison's Music, which I'd certainly recommend. Uh, And the way he describes it, which I think is really helpful, is to look at the First Amendment as a blueprint for democracy. So before we can even um, discuss the important political issues that are uh, needed in our democracy, we first have to figure out, well, what's most important to us? What are our values? What's important to us individually? And that's where religion comes into play. And once we figure that out, we then need the freedom to speak those values, speak about those important topics that matter most to us. And that's why we have freedom of speech. But just speaking one on one or in small groups like this, that's not enough. We need the freedom to speak to the masses. And that's why we have freedom of the press to take all those important ideas and to make sure as many people know about them as possible. But that's not in itself going to affect change, right? For our democracy to work, we need to take all of those ideas, we need to present them to as many people as possible, and then we need to assemble around them. We need to make sure that we can all gather around these issues and assemble and make sure that our voices collectively are being heard. But still, that's not enough. We have the last of the five freedoms, which 99% of the country um, can't name, it's the forgotten freedom, but still very important, our right to petition the government, to actually ask the government for change, to not just tell them, hey, these are the important issues that we're all talking about, but also saying, these are the changes we want you to make as our representatives. So if you look at all five of these freedoms together, that's what you have. You have a a blueprint for our democracy. But today we're gonna talk about speech. Uh, Speech is probably the most common freedom that that we discuss in this country, freedom of speech, uh, that that expression is used so often, uh, and it's often misused as well. I think there's a, a misconception among many that we have this freedom of speech that's absolute. Uh, that hinges on these first words of the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law. Um, But that isn't quite true because Congress can make laws restricting our right to free speech um, and does so in a a number of ways. And as I have here, and we'll go through these, uh, there are eight common exceptions to that First Amendment protection when we're talking about free speech. Uh, And these exceptions can ban certain speech outright, uh, criminalize it punish us for speaking in certain ways or restrict it or limit it in in other ways. Uh, And I want to begin with what uh, is probably on uh, everyone's mind given the recent um, events at the Capitol, incitement. Here you can see you have a number of comments made by former President Trump. Many of these were pointed to as uh, as the cause of the the insurrection at the Capitol, and uh, for some made a strong case that former President Trump was guilty of incitement. But what does incitement actually mean? Under the First Amendment, incitement is often defined differently than how it's used just in common parlance. So what is incitement? First thing that we need to know or remember is that advocacy for the use of force or for a violation of law is constitutionally protected. If we're merely advocating for some kind of unlawful activity, mere advocacy, that advocacy is protected. Where it loses its protection is when it crosses the line and becomes incitement. So if you're not just merely advocating for unlawful behavior, but you're directed to inciting or producing that imminent lawless action, and flag that word imminent, it must be imminent, and that action is likely to occur. Now, under the First Amendment, you may have incitement, and your speech may lose its protection. also want to Make sure everybody sees solicitation, which is a close cousin to incitement. And this is when you're making an actual proposal to engage in illegal legal activity. So again, you're not just merely advocating for this activity, but now you're making a proposal to actually engage in this activity and make that happen. All right, I see. Uh, someone could help me out here I see a question being posed but I can't access the question so it says these exceptions are all judicially oops these exceptions are all judicially created why not argue more for the court to overrule these exceptions until they are created by the people Uh, is there a way I can see that question myself uh, let me see. I'll put it in the chat for you. All right. Thank you. And if anybody has, I'll get to these questions at the end. If anybody has any other questions, you can just send them to me through the chat uh, directly rather than using the Q and think that, um, will be easiest until we get this issue resolved, but, uh, thank you for that. Um, so that's incitement and solicitation. Uh, The first major exception to First Amendment protection. The second, defamation and false statements of fact. Talking about libel here, or in its oral form, slander. And what you need here is a false and defamatory statement of alleged fact concerning someone communicated to a third party without defense. So, what are we talking about here? We're talking about statements that harm or affect somebody's reputation. And it needs to be false. And it can't just be me speaking to myself, but it needs to be communicated to a third party. And if you have those elements, you have an argument here for libel. Uh, But very important here, and you may remember this from old law school classes, con law, New York Times v. Sullivan created a higher standard to be met when we're dealing with public officials or public figures. And that's the actual malice standard. So when you have a public official, not only do you need these elements to meet the requirements of libel, but you also need to show that the statement made was made with knowledge that it was false with a reckless diga- or disregard as to whether it was false or not, which is a very high standard. And that's why we don't see many uh, libel suits being brought forward by public figures and public officials. That's a very high standard to meet. But it's a standard that we need because it gives breathing space, it gives some breathing room to all of us to speak about those that represent us, to speak about public figures and to discuss important issues that need to be discussed uh, without fear that a uh, a slip up of one fact or uh, misspeaking might expose us to some kind of liability. Obscenity, the third major exception to First Amendment protection, Uh, you might all recall Justice Stewart's famous quote here, I know it when I see it. Well, what is obscenity? If something is deemed obscene, it loses all First Amendment protection. That's a big deal. We have a First Amendment, a very strong First Amendment that protects all of the speech, but there's an entire category of speech, obscenity, that loses all protection. So what is obscene? How can we define what obscenity is? As Justice Stewart says, well, I know it when I see it, not very helpful. So we have this test, the Miller test. Speech, which would otherwise be protected by the First Amendment becomes unprotected if it's deemed obscene. And that obscenity test is, does the average person apply contemporary community standards, and that's important, Contemporary Community Standards, because that can change depending on what community we're discussing, right? So the average person applying Contemporary Community Standards would find that work taken as a whole. Again, that's important because if you're looking at a, a movie, for example, is it just a short clip of that movie? Is it the entire film? What portion of the material are we talking about? But taken as a whole, does it appeal to the prurient interest? In the prurient interest, we're talking about sex. We're talking about, as courts have defined it, uh, a morbid or deviant interest in sex. But we need more than that. We also need to make sure that that work depicts or describes in a patently offensive way under those community standards, sexual conduct defined by a state law. So there needs to be a state statute at play. And then if there is a state statute at play and those two requirements are met, we then again need to take a look at that work take it as a whole and make sure that it lacks any serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. This can be a very difficult test to to work with. There are a lot of elements here, a lot of subjective elements, like trying to determine whether something has serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. There isn't a whole lot of clarity with this test, but this is, The standard, this is the test that we're left with, to determine whether or not something is obscene. And if the government determines that it is, it loses all First Amendment protection. So the consequences are very severe. We have another exception here too, speech integral to unlawful conduct. So now we're talking about not just the speech itself, but what the speech causes. Does a speech tend to cause, or attempt to cause, or make a threat to cause some kind of illegal conduct? So probably the the easiest example to, to understand here is child pornography. Child pornography not protected by the First Amendment. The interest isn't so much in banning the speech, the communication, but the production of child pornography, because the production itself requires the exploitation of children, the harm of minors. That's the interest there. And child pornography has been defined as this, a visual depiction of children below the age of majority performing sexual acts or lewdly exhibiting their genitals, which sounds fairly straightforward. But you can go on Netflix right now and there are a couple of programs that have been uh, accused by some of being child pornography or showing child pornography. So even within this test, there's some concern that it might be over-inclusive and capture some material, some speech that most of us wouldn't consider child pornography and may want to have protected by the First Amendment. There's this show Desire, uh, as well as this documentary called Cuties. Both are available on Netflix right now, but both can arguably meet this test. Offensive speech. Now, it's really important when we're talking about the First Amendment, and if I could uh, direct everyone's attention to this one quote here, uh, which I I think really epitomizes the purpose of the, the First Amendment when it comes to speech. If there is a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds that idea itself offensive or disagreeable. And this is really the heart of the First Amendment, the purpose of the First Amendment. If we all spoke in ways that were agreeable to everyone and we all uh, were, weren't offending anyone and speaking in ways that, um, you know, that we all degreed, that we all agreed with, there would be no speech there to protect. But the First Amendment is there to make sure that government can't come in and start determining, well, what is offensive? What are those ideas that are disagreeable, those minority opinions that perhaps should be suppressed? It's because of those minority opinions, those uh, offensive ideas, that we have a First Amendment to make sure that government can't suppress them, which leads to some very offensive speech, like the burning of a flag. Texas v. Johnson, that's the case that this quote comes out of. You may also remember that there are other offensive speech cases like, uh, like Cohen, like wearing a jacket in a courthouse that says, fuck the draft. Offensive to some, a political speech and protected under the First Amendment. So it's really important as we go into this conversation about offensive speech to note that most offensive speech is going to be protected. That is one of the purposes of the First Amendment but there are some types of offensive speech that can be restricted or be punished by government. The first is fighting words. This test comes out of a case called Chaplinsky, which uh, if it were heard today, I'm not sure it would be upheld, but still uh, the law is, speech can be unprotected by the First Amendment if it's categorized as fighting words. So these are words that tend to again incite an immediate breach of peace but these words have to be used in a very personal way and be extremely offensive. We're talking about you know, abusive epithets, for example, uh, racial slurs, very offensive language that's used in a personal way directed at a person, uh, not a group of people, but at a specific person, uh, so much so that just by uttering those words, you would expect the hearer to, the recipient of that expression, to react in some kind of violent way. Those are the type of words, the type of language that we're talking about, and could be categorized as fighting words, and if so, losing protection under the First Amendment. We have infliction of emotional distress. Might recall this tort speech might be unprotected if it intentionally or recklessly inflicts severe emotional distress through extreme and outrageous means and is not on a matter of public concern. And that's a very important part of this test, the public concern. Here you have a picture of members of the Westboro Baptist Church, part of the case Snyder v. Phelps. You have this group going around and speaking in very offensive ways, holding up signs, like the ones that you see here protesting at military funerals. And they're doing this intentionally. They're doing this intentionally. They're causing emotional distress. I think most of us would agree they're doing so through extreme and outrageous means. But the question in that case, which was ultimately answered yes, is or was, are they speaking about something that's a matter of public concern? Because, again, under the First Amendment, we don't want to restrict people's right to talk about things that are of a matter of public concern, particularly when it comes to political speech. And in order to protect that freedom, we also need to make sure that we're giving people the ability to speak in the way that they think is most appropriate, even if most people would call it extreme and outrageous. Even if most people hearing it would become offended or emotionally distressed. But if we have speech that covers all of these things and is not a matter of public concern, is about some, uh, something that uh, is a private concern, then it may lose all protection under the First Amendment. Under the First Amendment, we also lose the right to send certain things to people's home, particularly if it's uh, obscene or pornographic or offensive in some way. Uh, In this case, Rowan v. United States Post Office, uh, we had someone mailing to uh, two homes in a a neighborhood, uh, pornographic material, without the consent of the homeowners. The homeowners didn't want this mailing. The First Amendment doesn't protect our right to send it to them anyway. That type of offensive speech, when it's sent to someone's mailbox and you are invading their, uh, the, their, the sanctity of their home and where they live, that type of speech is not protected by the First Amendment. Now, that doesn't mean you can't distribute that information elsewhere. You're not prohibited from publishing it to other audiences, particularly those that want that type of material. But when we're talking about somebody's home, there's a lot of protection there for the recipient of that message to object and to make sure they're not exposed to that kind of speech. And then lastly, with offensive speech, broadcast radio and TV. I know we're uh, becoming far removed from broadcast TV. When I teach this particular case to to law students, Uh, most need an explanation as to what broadcast actually is everyone's now using uh you know streaming services and the internet to get most of their their content but if we're talking about broadcast over-the-air signals offensive language can be limited you might recognize this guy a younger version of uh george carlin he had a monologue the seven dirty words you can't say on tv or on the radio and in this case uh, that monologue was aired on the radio and a listener was in the car with his son at about nine, 10 o'clock in the morning, heard it, was very offended, and filed a complaint with the FCC against that radio station. And what this case found was that that complaint could stand, that the radio station could be uh, punished or face consequences in some way for broadcasting certain offensive language over those public airwaves. But it's very important to remember that it's the offensive speech here that's the focus. And those consequences, they cannot occur if we're we're addressing the form of that speech, excuse me, if we're addressing the opinions or the viewpoints of that speech. It really needs to be focused on the offensive form. As soon as we start getting into punishing even broadcast stations, for uh, airing certain opinions or viewpoints, now we risk violating all of the protections that we have under the First Amendment. But if we're just limiting certain language, vulgarity, that can be limited when we're talking about broadcast, radio, and TV. Threats. Another category of speech that can be limited under the First Amendment. But we're not talking about hyperbole. We're not talking about threats that weren't meant to be taken seriously. We're talking about what are considered true threats. And it can be very difficult under the First Amendment to distinguish, well, what is, in fact, a true threat versus, say, someone coming up with some rap lyrics that sound threatening, like this guy, Anthony Alanis who went on Facebook years ago and wrote, there's one way to love you, but a thousand ways to kill you. And I'm not going to rest until your body is a mess, soaked in blood and dying from all the little cuts. Hurry up and die. He wrote those on Facebook. And who saw them? But his ex-girlfriend, who I think we can all understand would feel very threatened by this language. Alanis was just saying, hey, I'm trying to become the next Eminem. These are rap lyrics that I'm working on. It's not a threat. I have no intentions here of harming my ex. So how do you distinguish what's a true threat versus what could be, as Alanis is claiming, a form of art? But if we can distinguish, if we can find through the intentions of the speaker, if we can find through what a reasonable person would interpret This expression to mean that there was an actual intention here for this to be a, a true threat, then that language, that speech loses First Amendment protection and can be punished. But I would say of all of the exceptions to First Amendment protection, this group, this category of speech right here is probably the most difficult to distinguish. And I think we could use a lot more clarity as to well, how do we distinguish a true threat from hyperbole, for example? We could use some more clear lines. Law enforcement in particular is having a very difficult time and can have a very difficult time distinguishing true threats from other threats. And they're going to err on the side of protecting the recipient of this message, uh, which may keep the recipient safe, but it may also result in someone being punished for speech that's protected under the First Amendment. It can be very difficult to determine, well, what exactly is a true threat? But those true threats, again, not protected by the First Amendment. IP rights. So intellectual property, a very large category of speech that has some limited First Amendment protection. Uh, Probably the biggest group, uh, the biggest category are those uh, that speech that has copyright protection. Um, But we're also dealing with trademark and other IP rights. But it's usually copyright protection here that we're discussing. So questions then come up. Well, if we have a book like A Time to Heal, a memoir from a former president, that's mostly uh, uninteresting with the exception of a single chapter or a few pages that go into detail on something that everyone is interested in. Do we have the right to take that material and publish it on our own? Or does the owner of that speech have the exclusive right to do so? That's where these copyright questions come in. Same thing with photos as well. You may remember this of former President Obama. The photo on the left was taken by an Associated Press photographer. Shepard Fairey, an artist in Rhode Island, then took that photo and transformed it into a work of art. Is that fair use under copyright law? Case was ultimately settled. I think the consensus is, is that that is not fair use. But where are those lines? The fair use analysis under copyright It can be a difficult analysis to apply. And we, as speakers, need to be conscientious of the material that we're using when we're sharing it, reproducing it, whether we're doing so on social media, whether we're doing so through our own publications. But these laws that affect intellectual property certainly limit, to some degree, our ability to freely speak and to share information and materials like these. Lastly, commercial speech. As far as First Amendment protection goes, there's a spectrum of protection. So if you can imagine a spectrum with political speech being at the very top, receiving the most protection, pornography way down at the bottom, obscenity off the scale completely, commercial speech is probably somewhere in the middle. And we're talking about speech that proposes a commercial transaction. So think advertising. So a couple of bright line rules here, if the advertising is false or misleading, it can be restricted, it can be limited by government. If the commercial advertising concerns unlawful activities, again, it can be punished. But even if it doesn't concern any of those, if it's not false, if it's not misleading, if it doesn't concern unlawful activities, it can still be restricted if there's a substantial governmental interest. That restriction, it directly advances that interest and it is not more extensive than is necessary to serve that interest. So think about from years ago, tobacco advertising. You have tobacco companies advertising their product, commercial speech. Can the government limit it? Well, it certainly can, and it did, particularly the advertising that was focused on younger smokers, children, using cartoon characters like Camel Joe here to appeal to younger smokers. There's a substantial governmental interest here in protecting minors, and you see that through much of the First Amendment. The First Amendment is often going to defer to government interest when the protection of minors is at stake. Here with commercial speech, we have a lower standard. So because we have that governmental interest, limiting the way certain companies can advertise their product is going to advance that interest. But we still have to ask ourselves, is that restriction no more extensive than is necessary to serve that interest? You saw this play out a little bit with jewel pods a few years ago. Uh, there was some concern about the way that these pods were being advertised. Uh, they were being sold in, in flavors like creme brulee, vanilla, uh, you know, blue raspberry, crush, uh, flavors that were really targeted, the, the marketing of which were really targeted at Miner's. Ultimately, Juul and I think a number of other companies voluntarily scaled back their their advertising uh, and reconsidered the labeling of their product. Uh, But ultimately, if the government wanted to, under the First Amendment, some restrictions likely could have been put in place to restrict how that commercial speech occurred and who was targeted by it. So those are the eight most common exceptions to free speech. There are a number of others. Uh, I teach this as a three credit class. I spent a whole semester on the First Amendment. We could do it for two or three semesters. So there's a lot of material there, but I wanted to give everybody an introduction to where those exceptions are when it comes to our freedom of speech. So often we'll hear, you know, First Amendment, First Amendment, we have freedom of speech and that's great. And I love everyone holding that First Amendment banner and advocating for a free speech and our First Amendment freedoms. But it's important to know that the First Amendment isn't absolute, that we have many exceptions to First Amendment just within our freedom of speech. And those are the eight most common. So I'm happy to take any questions if anybody would like to discuss any of these in further detail, or if you have any specific questions about what we discussed, or even generally if you have any questions about the First Amendment, or the work of my organization, the New England First Amendment Coalition. I'm happy to take those now. Uh, Peter asks, where can we find information about other minor exceptions to freedom of speech besides the big eight? Uh, Peter, I'd be happy to send those exceptions to you personally. Uh, If you let me put my email back up, Uh, if you'd like to email me that question, I I can send you an outline of those other exceptions and some more resources that you can use to, um, to explore those other exceptions and other aspects of freedom of speech. And I would encourage everyone else to as well, if you're interested. So I have a question here from Sydney. What are your thoughts on the First Amendment and the current discussion of CDA 230? So uh, CDA 230, for those that don't know, the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, and what that does is it provides a level of protection for uh, internet service providers, uh, most commonly social media, other uh, other websites, but those that are providing a platform for all of us to speak. And what that protection allows. Or what that protection does is it uh, prevents, generally, it prevents any kind of lawsuits against that service provider uh, for, for example, defamatory speech that might occur on that platform. And the reasoning behind that, and I believe the CDA was passed in 1996, the reason behind it is because in the very early days of the internet, uh, there was some thought about relaxing the, the legal exposure that these internet companies have particularly in the early days, to try to provide some incentive for more companies to go online and to really um, make sure that the internet blossoms economically as uh, as it did. Um, but it's become very problematic lately in that there's a lot of misinformation being shared online, many defamatory statements. I mean, just go on Twitter or any other social media platform, and uh, the the level of dialogue you'll see is, is quite uh, a lot of personal attacks, a lot of misinformation, and a lot of defamation being thrown around. Um, so the question then becomes, well, do these internet service providers, should they have the level of protection that they do? And I think it's a it's a very important question. I think it's uh, gotten more important uh, recently. And uh, it's a question that I'm, I'm still... I'm still debating. Uh, I don't have, I think, a clear opinion on where we are with CDA 230 because I see those protections uh, as being very important in facilitating uh, speech. But I do see the harm in it as well. And I also see a a contradiction here uh, that that can be troubling because you have a lot of online services, particularly those that are providing news that aren't held to the same legal standards as say, a newspaper publisher. Uh, many of whom are you know having some financial difficulty and just trying to survive. So it's been very difficult for me in recent years to, to reconcile those things. So what I would say, um, and not to not to punt on this question, but I, I do think that CDA 230 should be reconsidered. We should be talking about it more. And I do think that there should be some clearer expectations of what those, um, of, of those that get CDA 230 protection, there should be some clearer expectations as to what should occur and what uh, would have to occur for that protection to be lost. You're with me for a moment, number of questions being posed there. just reading them now. All right. So Sarah asks, can you speak briefly about why the court found uh, in the Snyder v. Phelps case that the people's speech was of public concern uh, when it seemed to be focused on private prejudices? Um, great question. So with the court, so if I, I'll go back to this, this was, if you recall, under offensive speech, infliction of emotional distress, we have a group here, Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, what the court, we like it or not, what the court determined here was ultimately, even though this church was protesting outside a military funeral and was making some statements that were specific to the soldier that died in the family of that soldier, ultimately what the court decided was that the issues themselves uh, were pertaining to social policy in the country, foreign policy that American foreign policy and issues uh, beyond the scope of that one funeral that they were at or beyond the scope of, um, or of, of even just military funerals in general. But what they were speaking about were certain policies that the country had. And that was what the, the court determined was of public concern. Had all of their speech been specifically about one individual, and perhaps the court may have determined differently, uh, but it wasn't. You can see the signs that they're holding. I mean, they're, they're offensive signs, but they are uh, the message is, or at least can be arguably construed to be, uh, general messaging about the policies of our country, uh, social and otherwise, that these uh, individuals um, personally are opposed to. So some questions here, we didn't go into uh, religion or assembly, um, but, but I think worth discussing here. We have a question. Did you think people's freedom of religion was infringed upon by governmental COVID restrictions on houses of worship? And then a follow-up question here. Uh, did you think people's freedom of association or assembly was infringed upon by governmental COVID restrictions on people gathering together? Uh, great questions. And I think the answer may differ uh, depending on which state we're in. There are various... Uh, you know there were differences as far as the restrictions that we all encountered from state to state. Uh, but I do think that there are some examples uh, where the restrictions uh, were, that were imposed were probably more than what was necessary or there were some inconsistencies. Uh, what we did see was a lot of, um, despite the, the social distancing restrictions that we had during, uh, during the, the height of the pandemic, We did see a lot of gathering in the streets, a lot of protests around social justice, which I think was good. And I think should have been allowed. Uh, That's political speech and should be protected. And I think we should expect our government to do uh, everything it can to make sure that that type of speech exists and we can express ourselves in that way. Um, But I don't, at least in, in the instances I saw, I didn't see that same type of deference given to religious institutions, uh, when it came to having people gather uh, to worship at uh, you know a church or a synagogue or a mosque, um, and and I, I found some you know contradiction there. Can we worship on our own privately? You know perhaps, uh, but if our religion is expecting us to gather um, as a group, then that needs to be respected under the First Amendment as well. So. Uh, so to answer the question, um, you know, I, again, very fact sp- specific, it really depends on uh, what state restrictions were in place. But as a general matter, you know, that is one uh, issue that I saw some, uh, some differences in that I, I don't think there, there should have been under the First Amendment. Sorry for the pauses in between, but uh, reading through these these questions here, one by one. Uh, Question here, could you talk a little bit about protection from compelled speech? Uh, great question. So again, um, this goes, you know, beyond the scope of, of this presentation, uh, these are the, the most common exceptions. Um, but we have this issue of compelled speech and what that is, is when the government is forcing you to speak in a certain way, uh, a way that you wouldn't otherwise express yourself. Uh, and this is allowed, but only in certain situations, there is a, uh, a standard of review, um, called strict scrutiny that I'm sure you're all familiar with, that uh, by and large governs how these compelled uh, speech cases are decided. So strict scrutiny, very high level of scrutiny uh, and review. uh, So most of the time, the government can't tell you what to say, Um, but it's become a a very relevant issue because uh, we as an organization, NEFAC, we've been running into this quite a bit. There's legislation that's being heard in a, a number of states recently um called you know, either media liability legislation or guilt by association legislation and what these bills intend to do is uh is force the publishers of news to update stories that they've written uh, about those that have gone through either the criminal justice system or other governmental hearings and to make sure that if that reporting occurred those news publishers are then forced at a later date to update those stories, particularly when they're requested to do so by the individuals in those cases. If there was a favorable ruling or uh, some other decision that was made, uh, the update uh, being required to protect that person's reputation. So when we search for that person's name, we don't just get that initial story, but we get all the updates as well sounds like responsible journalism, certainly sounds like uh, something that we could all rally around more information out there, giving us more uh, details about a particular case. But while most newsrooms are dealing with these types of questions on their own and how to engage in this type of responsible journalism, the situation changes when you have government compelling that type of speech. When you have government through laws like these that are being proposed, forcing news publishers to speak, to express themselves, to report the news in in certain ways. Uh, That is a clear violation of the First Amendment. Uh, There are cases very much on point that say government has no right meddling in the editorial discretion of newspaper publishers. You can't force newspapers or other news publishers to be responsible. That's not something that the government can do under the First Amendment. Uh, but as a general matter, when it comes to compelled speech like this, strict scrutiny applies. That's the level of review, and it's a very high level of review that uh, is difficult for the government to meet. uh let's see uh question here about a government rule that's keeping city streets clean and free of commercial advertising claiming that this is an important governmental interest um and in doing so 10% of the commercial content was was put down is the regulation constitutional uh i think i would need to know a little bit more uh, about that question i will say when it comes to um when it comes to restrictions on on certain speech, uh, government can restrict the time, place and manner in which that speech occurs. But there's a couple of really important parts to that test. Um, First, the restriction needs to be content neutral. So for example, a a town can regulate the size of signs on your private property, for example. Um, It can do that because that is, the manner in which you're expressing itself. But if the restriction is based on a certain viewpoint or a message on the sign, then it's no longer content neutral. And that restriction would be analyzed under a much higher level of review, like strict scrutiny. Um, And there would also have to be, under these time-place manner restrictions that are content neutral, there would also have to be other uh, alternatives for that communication. So while I don't know if I'm answering your question directly, Um, As a general matter, the government can restrict speech when it comes to the time, place, and manner of that speech, but only, only if that restriction is content neutral, and we have ample alternatives to express ourselves. All right, another good question here um, regarding COVID. Wouldn't the government's underlying health and safety concerns be a legitimate governmental interest worth advancing at the expense of potentially infringing on the individual's First Amendment rights? Absolutely. The public safety is certainly a, uh, a very high concern for the government. It's a it's a great governmental interest. Uh, but like many things we see under the First Amendment, there's a, a balance here. So. Just speaking as a matter of policy, what I like to see the government do is to look at that balance and make sure that it's doing everything it can to not only preserve public safety, but to allow us to express ourselves and to have the freedoms that our First Amendment provides and not put so much emphasis on the public safety that we lose all of those rights. I think that's a a much more dangerous path to go down particularly during a a public health crisis, where the need for information and the need for us to communicate with ourselves is perhaps greater than it is under normal circumstances. Those freedoms need to be protected. So certainly the public's interest in staying safe and healthy is great. And the government's interest in protecting that public safety is great, but that can't completely override our First Amendment rights. In fact, there needs to be some kind of balance there. And you didn't always see that uh, over the last year or so. I think in some cases, that interest in preserving public safety and enforcing certain health restrictions um, was perhaps given too much weight to the detriment of our First Amendment rights. Just scrolling through here, making sure I hit all of these questions. If there are any others uh, or any that I missed, please, please ask now. All right. Unless there are some remaining questions, we can end there. I would encourage everyone to please keep in touch. Again, please let me know how our organization could be a resource to you. If you have any other questions regarding the First Amendment uh, related to what we discussed here today, the common eight exceptions to First Amendment protection, um, or anything else related to the work we do, I'd be happy to help. Uh, let's see, there's one more question in the Q&A box. Uh, if you could point me to that one, I'd be happy to answer it. Sorry, I missed it. Are uh, private companies like Twitter and Facebook authorize to censor speech on their private platform. How does this fit within the exceptions? Uh, Great question and goes back to section 230. So uh, private companies under section 230 aren't expected to be uh, completely hands-off when it comes to the speech on their platforms. To some degree, and and I'll admit I'm not an expert on Section 230, but to some degree there's an expectation that they're going to uh, reduce harm. So if there is an ability or an opportunity to, um, to have certain policies for that platform that say reduce the chance that somebody might incite violence or defame an individual, then those policies certainly can and should be put in place. Those are the terms of service that we all agree to when we sign up for these particular uh, platforms. Where things get tricky under the law and what isn't allowed is for those terms of services to be applied differently, based, particularly when it's based on your own uh, viewpoint or political affiliation. And that's the debate, I think, that's really fueling the issue of Section 230 right now are these terms of services being applied fairly? Or are certain political voices uh, being discriminated against? And are those policies being enforced only against conservative voices, for example, versus liberal voices? Uh, Very important questions that I think go into the Section 230 debate. um, But that that type of discrimination is what's to be avoided. Uh, Other types of, um, uh, you said censorship, but uh, editing or the uh, you know, uh, curating of various expression that's on these platforms can be allowed so long as it's in the terms of service and those terms are applied fairly. All right. Any other questions? All right. Great. Well, again, please take note of my contact information. If there's anything I can do to help, uh, happy to. Also, uh, we have a board of directors that's about, uh, about 30 deep right now that includes some of the, uh, the best media attorneys and journalists in New England covering all six New England states. Uh, so if there are any introductions you'd like me to make, if there's any information that I personally cannot help you with, I can certainly find someone who can. So again, please use this as a resource. Stay in touch and uh, let us know what we can do to help. And thank you all again for joining today. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye.